I'm Dave, owner of Farm Fresh Carterville. I already know my customers are some of the coolest, best people around, but checkout's a fast place and people are on the go. I decided to try to slow things down and get to know my regulars, to discover who they are, to hear their stories, to check in with the people who check out with me. On this episode of Check In, Check Out, we chat with chemist, educator, and orange juice aficionado, James Elliott. I'm trying, right. to, trying to get to know all of my, uh, my regulars and my customers, <laughs> my neighbors, uh, people from around town. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a fun, interesting thing, and I think it's um, a sort of doubly fun in this instance because you are, I think, originally from quite far away. That's right. Originally grew up in Scotland in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a bit of a trek to what my normal local shop would be back in Scotland. So oh. I come here instead. Where's that? Tell me tell me about tell me about your local shop. I'm super curious. Well I I grew up in specifically in just outside Stirling. I was born in Stirling. It's on the east coast of Scotland, just about thirty, maybe forty forty miles north of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And so I lived in a little village just uh, in the shadow of Stirling, a place mm-hmm. called Tullabuddy. Tullabuddy? Yes, okay. you, can, you, can do, you can Google it and look mm-hmm. for it. It's just this tiny little village. It's about maybe, well, I say tiny, but it's maybe, must be probably three or 4,000 people there. So it's not the smallest of villages, but it's a beautiful part of the world. If people mm-hmm. um, Google and have a look at some pictures, You've got the Oakle Hills just outside Tillabury, which is a little range of um, hills about six or seven hundred feet tall, just to the north of where I grew up. Because where I would live, that would look out to Stirling, which is built on a hill mm. and a bit of magma rock, a little bit like Edinburgh Castle. So you've got the Stirling Castle, which is the highest point in the town. Okay. And then slightly to the east in Causeway Head, there's this brilliant... A hundred foot high monument to William Wallace ah. called the Wallace Monument, which again another little little crag of lot, a rock sticks up and as I just breaks the skyline just next to mm. local hills. So I often look back at pictures of where I grew up and thought, goodness me, that's a really beautiful part of the world, and I forget how kind of how used to it you get when you grow up and you just nah, see it every day you don't, you don't really appreciate it sure until you're not there anymore yeah i think that's a little bit like southern illinois then you know like i think again anybody from here likes to kind of dog on a little bit but uh-huh. i mean it certainly is beautiful there's so many right so many like just you know, wonderful like, right parts it's a, certainly a green part of the world and mm. um you kind of get used to it because you just see it every day and you don't really appreciate what you've got until it's not there yeah absolutely absolutely and you've been here now for uh here in southern illinois uh you'd sent me a little bio Mm -hmm. and it sounds like for for almost 10 years now and and prior to that western illinois it's longer than that actually i got here in 2005 okay i came here from indiana i'd been up in fort wayne indiana teaching up there for a year until the position finished and then threw all my stuff in a truck and came down here in the summer of 2005 and started in the fall Hmm. in 2005 teaching general chemistry and the organic courses so i'm getting pretty close to 20 years now which is kind of traumatic when i think about it because i I keep hoping and trying to convince myself that i'm younger than i actually am and then i have to think well 
No, I've been here almost 20 years. I'm getting quite old in the tooth now. Uh-huh. I can't deny I'm in my 50s anymore. I'm definitely in my mid-50s now. So, Have you gotten any answer to the question yet of how long you have to be in Southern Illinois before you're a Southern Illinoisan? I don't know. I still, um, I still remember fondly because before I was in Indiana, I'd actually spent three years in Missouri. And people would tell me there, well, you must be a Missouri now because you say Missouri instead of saying Missouri. So I'd cottoned on to that little kind of caveat mm-hmm. of being out in Missouri. But um, yeah, it's been 20 years now, well, almost 20 years in Southern Illinois. And that's the longest I've lived anywhere since I was about 17, 18 years old. Mm. Because once I went off to college, when I was 18, I didn't live anywhere for more than probably three or four years at a time, because I did my my diploma originally in Dundee, in Scotland. And then I spent three years back home working in a biology lab, and then moved to Glasgow and turned my diploma into a degree. A couple of, uh, three years down in England in Hull to do a PhD. Mm and a postdoc in Exeter, and a postdoc in Missouri. Hmm. So really, I've been quite settled down in southern Illinois for a lot longer than just about all those other positions put together. Hmm. Hmm. And yet, I think it's interesting that, you know, when you show up today, and of course people on the podcast can't see this, but you've got your your shirt, you know, half-tartan with the the crest and everything, and, and and I've seen you in the store, and you frequently... You know, are sort of representing Scotland. Oh yeah, one still, way or another. still yeah. proudly Scottish. Yeah. Um, there's a clan on the southern border of Scotland. There's the Elliot clan, and they have their own tartan. Mm-hmm. Although, I don't. I'm not sure if it's really an original, a true tartan, mm. because it's really mostly only the Highland clans in the north of Scotland which really have tartans. Mm. About 150 years ago, about the late 19th century, about 1880 and the likes, there's a really big kind of upswelling of kind of national pride in Scotland. It became trendy to be patriotic again, Mm. when it hadn't been for a while. And so a lot of new tartans just cropped up. Mm. And I think the Elliot tartan is one of those ones because a lot of the clans in the southern uh, part of Scotland, they didn't really wear tartan, it just Mm. wasn't the thing. Because in the Highlands, you didn't have a lot of access to a lot of kinds of clothes, so most people did wear kilts, but you didn't have access to many kinds of dyes. Mm. So if you were in a certain area of the Highlands, you would only have certain dyes, and so you would normally produce the same kind of tartan. And so it wasn't really meant to be like the the Mackays or the Macintoshes who associated with a particular um, scheme of tartan. It just happened that that was the only kind of colours they had, so they all just made the same kind of tartans. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Huh. Well, let's uh, let's 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 go backwards slightly. I, I um, I'm interested in how you got into the sciences in the first place, and because one thing you had um, sort of hit me to was that you do a YouTube channel uh, yes. for which, amongst other things, has uh, content of you uh, teaching children, uh, little kids. That's right. Um, and 
I think that's interesting, and it, and it seems to me that at some point in time, that may be when the science bug kind of got you. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I would say maybe a little bit older than those kids, maybe probably about 12 when I went to um, high school in Britain. In Britain, the, you, you, you're, you're still in a kind of, no, it's what do you call it here? Kids here, they go to, is it elementary? And then they eventually are in the kind of high school yes. kind of format. Mm -hmm. In Britain, you, you kind of stay in the kind of elementary kind of um, format until you're 11 years old, which mm -hmm. I think is later than what kids in America do. Because up until you're 11, mm -hmm. you just have one teacher Interesting. all year. And the, and the same people in the in the classroom all year, and it isn't until you're eleven or twelve, you get into a kind of like what I would consider like an American high school kind of mm -hmm. setup, where you're running around to different rooms and seeing different teachers for their own little specialized subjects. Sure. So there's a kind of a difference I find compared to between kids in Britain and America, but um, it was probably when I went to. Um, what I would call secondary school in Britain, what you would probably call high school, that's when we started to get specialised teachers in, say, chemistry or biology and physics. And that's when I really got a, a real serious dose of the sciences. Mm. And I think partly it was, it was something that really interested, interested me. But it was also, luckily, something I was really good at. Mm. I enjoyed my sports. I still love my, my sports, but I was never terribly good at it. I was always one of those people who was last to be picked yeah. when you're in the playground and there was two people picking teams to play a, a game of football or something or soccer. I was always one of the last, <laughs> the last to be picked because I was probably one of the most least coordinated people uh, growing up. So... I couldn't uh, say I was good at sports, but I was certainly good at sciences. And so during my kind of high school years, it was really 50-50 between science and actually drama. Because I loved doing drama, and I, for a time, there was a time when I was about 13 or 14 years old, when I almost thought I was going to be an actor or a comedian. Because huh? I love showing off, I love being in front of the class, in front of the rest of the class, and just talking about myself or talking about something and kind of just having my own way to show off. And there's a bit of showmanship, I think, in teaching, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. that's partly why the appeal for teaching really mm. caught on uh, for me at a later life. And I thought, well, gee, this is where this is my my way into my kind of childhood t uh, years of wanting to be a comedian, or at least being the centre of the attention, because I've got a classroom full of people. And they just have to listen to me. They've got no other choice. They have to listen to what I'm talking about. So, yeah, there was, there was definitely that kind of aspect. I, um, I was thinking when I was teaching in my later years, yeah, this is kind of like what I, what, what I enjoy doing, standing up and talking in front of people because I don't have any problem talking to, pe <laughs> talking to people and, and telling them about something. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely... One of the things that was at the back of my mind and was in in sky in high school years was I liked teaching, um, or liked the idea of teaching because I got to stand up and just talk at other people for long periods of time. Mm. But I almost went into drama, 
but I was then still in high school and then in the last year, I think it was the last two years I was in high school, they, the school didn't have enough mon uh, money for the, the drama teacher, mm. so they got laid off. Oh. So I stopped doing plays and doing comic routines, and so that kind of pushed me into the sciences, more into into drama. Hmm. Interesting. And do you have a, um, uh, did you have a specialization at the time in the sciences that... that that you were uh, that you went into. I, I mean, I assume by the time, of course, you're doing your uh, well, postgrad. You, you uh, equally got classes with certain teachers, some teachers of chemistry, mm -hmm. and then you was a teacher for physics and a teacher for biology. Mm. Now, I loved my chemistry teachers. I thought they were really fun, um, and I but I didn't like my physics teacher, so I knew I didn't want to do uh, physics mm. um, as as a core subject. I didn't love my biology teacher. I thought he was really funny, but I never really liked the idea of dissecting frogs or small animals like rats and mice and things. I was just, it was never, I, I never got the hang of that. Mm. Because when I was doing um, biology classes in high school back when I was young in the 80s, um, in those days, when you had to dissect an animal, if it was just a small thing like a, like a frog, for example, which mm -hmm. is the main thing most people remember starting on, for me, in the eighties, I had to actually you had to actually kill the frog yourself. Oh, it wasn't like the way it is now. I think where they've already chopped the head off the frog if you're doing a dissection, and it's already presented to you as a dead organism. When I was in school in the in the 80s, you had to kill the frog yourself. So you picked a frog and you literally grabbed it by the legs, swung it around wildly in the air, and then slammed its head on the table. Oh, that's quite grim. As, <laughs> and as, I mean, I, I don't think any kids in America have had to do that. Uh, and it was kind I of... I certainly haven't. <laughs> it, was it was really potentially traumatic. <laughs> and um, I thought, oh God, I don't think I could do this for a living for the rest of my life, having to kill these animals. And I've actually, there was one time, because I, when the girls had to do it, they were also often quite a little bit more squeamish than the men and the guys were. I, don't mm -hmm. know, I felt squeamish, squeamish enough as it is. Um, and I was actually a couple of times hit in the back of the head by a frog because the girls wouldn't hold on to it tightly <laughs> enough. And it would come loose in the hand and go flying across the room. Flying frogs. <laughs> oh, one of the hazards so, of science class. <laughs> so I kind of at that stage when it came to dissections, but you had to do it yourself. Or, yeah, I don't think biology is for me either. Mm. So chemistry, <laughs> by default, chemistry won. But it definitely made an impression on me at the time, the way I didn't like my physics teacher. Mm. It definitely made an impression on me that, you know, you've got to pour your personality into your teaching hmm. because you're not just selling the science, you're selling yourself to the kids as well. And if you can sell a little bit of yourself to the kids, then you're going to take them with you for longer on that journey as they try and learn some science. And it wasn't that my physics teacher was a bad person. The problem was he was very monotonous. Mm. So he would just, in a very kind of, very even voice, would just drone out these lectures of physics. And it was just very kind of, 
um, sleep inducing the way you would yeah. talk hmm. and you if you want the kids to be excited about science you've got to show them that you're excited about science as well so you've got to remember the things that made you passionate and how you felt when you learned certain things and try and you know try and rediscover that hmm. the way you some people would tell me I know some people who who recite poetry for a living and they would talk about trying to rediscover a poem as they actually um, conveyed it or uh, spoke it aloud to an audience. And so um, I think a good, for me, a good trick is to try and get excited about the chemistry as I'm teaching it. And that probably is difficult because it's something you're doing again and again, I would assume, as a lesson. Right. I mean, yeah. you're, you're coming back to the same ideas, but... I've never found teaching uh, boring because every class is different because the mm. kids in the class is different are different and so the interaction you get from a class is different every single single semester so that keeps for me that keeps a spice to it and it always keeps it lively and that is like drama then right I mean a little like bit. in in a play or in a, a live live theater like the the interaction between the performer and the audience is that sort of critical you know component right. in the rest because of yeah. sometimes the audience is feeding off you but sometimes mm. you're feeding off the audience yes very much so yeah. yeah so i guess my my kind of love of drama really is still alive today <laughs> i think so i think so i saw um i was commenting when you walked in about the the license plate the doc y uh, which I think is uh, very clever and very British. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's, that's been my email address for mm -hmm. oh, probably since the 1990s, I think, a long time, Dr. Y at Hotmail.com. Mm. And so I've always kind of, it almost kind of became my nickname after a while. When I was in Missouri for a couple of years doing research and teaching there, I think it was still at a time frame where um, I guess the Back to the Future movies were still kind of semi-fresh in people's minds in the early two two thousands, and so a lot of people used to call me Doc back in those days or Doctor Y. So it's it's always kind of stuck to me. So I've always made sure my license plate was Doc Y. Mm, I like that, and it's a more important question in some ways. <laughs> why instead of whom? <laughs> That's right. I've never thought of it like that, but yes, why? Always ask why. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, Let's, uh, let's change topics slightly. I do see, like, frequently when you come in the store, you've got uh, some uh, football supporter gear on. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about tell me about your team or your teams. Well, of course, curious. translating for our American audience, I'm, I'm talking about soccer yes. when I say football. Real football, as I wag my finger and point <laughs> out to Americans, real football, soccer. So, um, I think probably very similar to the way that people are into sports over here. You're kind of groomed as a young child by the kind of teams that your fa the rest of the family support. And so in Scotland for, for soccer or real football, you, you're almost always in two camps, wherever you, wherever you are in the country. You've got the two big teams in Scotland, which are Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic. And so my family fell on the Glasgow Rangers side of things. Mm. And we didn't live in Glasgow. We lived about 50 miles away in Stirling. But it's one of those things that these two clubs are just so big that people all around the country in Scotland 
a sizable chunk of the population of that ch town instead of supporting their local team will support either Rangers or Celtic. And I'm, I'm sure there's probably a similar thing here. I think the Cowboys. Uh, right. The Cowboys people, is the one that strikes me. Right. It can be anywhere in the nation and right. be a Cowboys. Fan. Even if they've yeah. never set foot in Dallas, sure. they maybe associate themselves with the Dallas Cowboys. And I think in soccer in America, you'll get people who uh, maybe associate themselves with Arsenal or Manchester United, you know, just mm -hmm. picking a team to follow. So I fell on the Glasgow Rangers side of things. Uh, side of things. And um, my dad used to take me to games when I was a little boy, about 12 or 13, used to go up to Glasgow for the games. And then when I was about 16, I was getting, my dad was getting a bit too old in the tooth to go to football games anymore. So then I started going with my brother, who had been grown up in the same way, been taken to games uh, with, with our dad. And then for a while, I used to go with my brother to games. And, mm. you know, I used to travel all around the country, visiting away grounds as well as going to the home games. So, mm. yeah, even today, I'm still fanatical about it. And usually see most of the games, if not live, usually later in the day, usually in the evening after the game's finished. Mm. So it's, which works out because I don't usually get to talk to people about football so there's nobody spoiling the score sure, for me. So sure. <laughs> as long as I can stay off Facebook, I usually don't find out the, the score. Nice. Which um, for a while I found out how addicted I was to Facebook because I found it really difficult to stay away from Facebook mm. before I watched the game. But I'm, I'm getting out there now. I've kind of trained myself to stay off social media until I've seen the game. At least on game days. Yeah. At least on game days, <laughs> important days. So it was a big game last night. They just won against um, Ross County, who are not a particularly big team um, themselves, but they won last night and went top of the league mm. with um, Celtic. And that's been a long time since Rangers have been in that position. We've been under Celtic's shadow for a couple of years. Mm. So Glasgow Rangers is one of my main teams. I also, when I used to, when I did my PhD, I was working down in England and... I lived in an apartment with two guys who were Liverpool supporters and one guy who was an Everton fan, Everton being the rival team to Liverpool. Ah. So when big derby matches came up between Liverpool and Everton, the, the guy who supported Everton would adopt me as the Everton supporter <laughs> just to even up the apartment yeah. um, for yeah. watching these games. And at first it was just a joke, you know, just for a bit of fun. But after six months or a year, I kind of did start keeping an eye out for the Everton scores. So I, I did become an Everton fan as well. So that's the other kind of sure. A bit of Stockholm syndrome there with that team. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was, in, I was inducted into it against my will. Mm. So I've been also a long-suffering long Everton fan. Mm. But they haven't been a good team for a long time. So, <laughs> so <laughs> other ranges, I tend to pick the poor teams. I've also been a long-suffering Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Ah. 20 years ago, first time I came over to America, I was visiting friends in Toronto. So being almost part of the culture in Toronto, mm -hmm. you go and watch a hockey game. So they took me to a couple of hockey games, fell in love with the sport because it's, it's fast. It's a bit like football. Sure. It doesn't really stop for very long and it's just zipping up and down the ice. And so uh, Toronto was my team. But... 
I, and sadly, I have to say that Toronto have not won Lord Stanley's Cup since before I was born, mm. which is an embarrassing amount of time now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that meant my 50s, but never mind. I am curious, uh, and this may be a pretty silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Ted Lasso, how much did they get right about football? Did you watch? Well, I have seen the first season mm. of Lasso. I did watch that. And I think it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. Um, I've Seasons two and three are just something I want to eventually get around to. Mm. I enjoyed the way that they didn't they didn't overreach mm. because by the end of the first season the team does go down mm-hmm. in, in the show so I thought well they're not overreaching about his abilities to, to be, become a football coach and I guess it, I would say it was probably fairly realistic mm. because I think even now people in Britain are probably still looking down their nose at America and think yes well Americans aren't really into real football alien they don't really understand real football <laughs> because in america well now that i've been here for almost 20 years in america you come to mid pockets in the midwest and you actually find quite a lot of people who are just crazy about soccer football mm-hmm. in the same way as i am yeah. although it, it tends to be the younger generations because it's something i think that kind of from the from the grassroots up so to speak kind of started getting some momentum in the, the early 2000s when I first got here. Yeah. So I think people who are about my age, I, st- I still think it's not a really well-known thing, mm-hmm. um, soccer. But you talk to kids who are like 20 years younger than me, I'd find a lot more people who are into soccer in that kind of generation than a kind of equivalent generation for me and the, the people in their 50s. I agree. So, I, and I think it has something to do with the programs, the right. the you know availability of being able to play in a on a team and right. that, that is somewhat feels somewhat. They've new. been they've uh, grown up. Um, these these coming generations have grown up um, playing football at school the way people in the forties and fifties maybe never had a chance to play soccer mm. when they were growing up. Mm. So um, I think there's a still. For people in Britain, as I think it, it kind of alludes to in the show for Ted Lasso, there's a bit of snobbery, mm. and you see a lot of characters kind of, kind of discounting Ted Lasso and looking down at him because, well, he's an American. He, how can he possibly understand real football? Mm. And I think some of that actually probably still exists. So, um, sad to say, it's still true. Yes. The chance. The chance is one of the things that that I have found most interesting about the show. All the the uh, the interaction, the 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 the, the singing, mm. you know, in the stands. Is that real? Oh yeah, that's real for um, a lot of clubs. Usually, just taking, sometimes taking snippets of like popular songs and things, and just reinventing new lyrics and words for them. Yeah, mm. you, you still see a lot of that. And the Rangers, do they games. have any of those? They've got some. I um, I don't think there's any I can repeat because they can often be quite <laughs> quite rude. They tend to be very rude, so I don't think your viewers would be interested in those ones. But for example, the the one I could repeat is um, our main striker at the moment is this fellow. I think he's I think he's Dutch. I have to, I can't remember. Serial Dessers. Now he this is his first season at Rangers. 
and he struggled for a bit. Mm. But he started to gain his confidence back and started to score some goals, mm. starting to get a, a, a good record for goals in the last month or so. So the fans have started chanting his name. Mm. And I don't think it's taken from a particular uh, pop music song, but in the 70s there was a, a, an English striker called Cyril, I think, oh, Cyril Smith or Cyril Regis, probably Cyril Regis. He had a chant for his name, and now the Rangers supporters have adopted that chant for Cyril Dessers. Mm. So they'll say, nice one, Cyril, nice one, son, nice one, Cyril, let's have another one. Mm. And you hear that echoing around Glasgow now when he scores a goal. Mm. I wish he was doing a little bit more often, but he's, he's getting there. <laughs> so you'll get chants like that. It's, it's unfortunate with, with Glasgow Rangers and Celtic because there's unfortunately a, a very dark, deeper animosity mm. between Rangers and Celtic because of religion. Mm. Glasgow Rangers are a Protestant club. Mm. And Glasgow Celtic are a Catholic club. Mm. And unfortunately, there's some pockets of society in Scotland where this kind of bigotry between Protestant and Catholic still exists. And it's been entrenched in the two clubs for over 100 years. And it's, what, it's the kind of, it's the disgraceful side mm. of football in Glasgow these days. So unfortunately, a lot of the chants kind of it ah. touch on this darker side, unfortunately. I see. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it's sad. So I want to go back just very, very early in our in our conversation. You mentioned a store that you used to go to, that Farm Fresh. All right, so you of a little bit. Little... And I'm curious about that, and then I will turn you loose. Uh, <laughs> you, I understand, have more classes tonight. I've got a, a class at six o'clock tonight, general chemistry. Uh, with some nurses and so um, that's always a difficult class to teach in the evening mm. because it's often the only time that these kids can fit the class into their schedule because they've probably been working all day mm. so I get a lot of well I say kids a lot of them are 20, 21 uh, a lot of these uh, students have already been up since 6 o'clock in the morning working themselves to the bone at one of the local hospitals and they've done a 12-hour shift and then they come and sit in my class. Well, I hope they, I hope they swing by well. the store for a Red Bull or something <laughs> before they come see it. That's dedication, though. So uh, where I used to live in Tullabuddy, um, there's a little store a couple of blocks away mm -hmm. um, that I used to go to. So my mum would send me with a little shopping list every day and send me down to the shops. Now, these little kind of little corner stores that are just owned by families, mm -hmm. in the 1970s, um, a lot of these stores um, were taken over by immigrants who'd come over from India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So for the longest time, it was just a little uh, Pakistani family who owned the store. Mm -hmm. And so that was interesting. That was my first introduction to a a foreign language because mm. you'd hear, hear them talking to each other in Pakistan and um, it got me interested in languages for a while mm. uh, before I got onto sciences and things but yeah that used to be my little thing every day just walking down to the, down to the uh, store rain or shine mostly rain because we're talking about Scotland after all <laughs> and uh, pick up about probably about 
maybe five dollars, ten dollars worth of messages each day, getting milk, and if I got if there was enough change, I could get a chocolate bar for myself. Nice. So that was. <laughs> well, some things never change. Some things never change. Yeah. I'm still buying milk and chocolate, mm. and of course some fresh orange for my wife because that keeps her happy. Nice. Well, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, that's all right. I'll talk to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Check In, Check Out is produced by me, Dave Armstrong, with original music from John Michael Wiggs. Thanks for listening.